Crumb. Four, three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. And I am Jonathan. And you are joining us here at the end of the Gothic Road. We're going to put a little uh, nail in the coffin, as it were, final mm-hmm. stitch into uh, a sutured arm or appendage. What do we do for Jekyll or Hyde? A, a final little Last dropper Last full of... Yeah, last potion, a final little tincture uh, being administered down the hatch. And we're going to wrap this thing up, y'all. That's the that's the plan. I think according to my records, this is episode 10. Does that sound right? That sounds right. For uh, for season 15. So, yeah, we're going to we're going to be wrapping things up. We will uh, maybe just go around the horn, talk about some of the things we like, some of the things we didn't like favorite moments in the books, all that kind of good stuff. We're going to do that, and then we'll also unveil and discuss where we're heading next. That'll be the, the major items on the on the table today. So, with that, John, what are you drinking? Uh, I, I'm with the old classic Wild Turkey 101 over here. What about you, Josh? I've got Evan Williams bottled in bond, 100 proof, bottled under U.S. government supervision. So, you know, it's you know, it's safe. So uh, Joe Biden watched that bourbon get made is what you're telling me. Well, I think it's got to be aged six years, right? Oh. Four. Four years. That's right. Four. At least four for it to be bottled in bond. So maybe not, actually. Like Pence. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, and I've, got, <laughs> I've got some Canada dry ginger ale to go with it. That sounds tasty. It seems like the, the Evan Williams bonded has been easier to find this year. Mm-hmm. Now that they kind of closed out the, the Heaven Hill green labels, we can't really get those anymore. I haven't seen those things. They're they're unicorns anymore. But it seems like the the straight up white label Evan Williams is pretty easy to get. And the price point's still pretty reasonable, too, for the big jugs. Mm-hmm. So I'm liking it. It's making a comeback. <laughs> Don't call it a comeback. Yeah. I mean, you've always been drinking it. That's been a, a mainstay for you I do, uh, that I you've do liked. Like it. And when when the you're right, when the Heaven and Hill bonded kind of went away. Um, this is kind of what I switched to because it was what within five or six dollars of that mm-hmm. of that Heaven Hill. So it's good. I, I like it a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm drinking one of my Kirkland signature Citra Hop Session IPAs. I brought up a handful of those, so I'm drinking some of my green beers from the Costco, which I can't quit them. They're delicious. They're just <laughs> solid, hoppy little five percent beers. So. Well, with that, we'll move along and talk about our one things. One thing. I'm going to keep the keep the order the same. I hope you're ready to go, John, because you are it. I'm ready to go. My one thing this time around is a book called Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, as written and drawn by Tom Scioli, uh, who I know we've got some fans of here on the show. I haven't seen anything from Tom Scioli in quite some time. Uh, he did a run on, like, a knockout. Uh, he did the G.I. Joe Transformers thing. He did another thing that was, like, I can't remember what it was. It was another sort of 80s or 90s concept that he kind of updated he did Fantastic Four Grand Design recently, but it was this was apparently something he came out with in 2020, and I remember seeing bits and pieces of it a long time ago on his blog, uh, maybe even on his Tumblr, where he was illustrating the life of Jack Kirby. And I remember sending one to Luke and him being very impressed with like the sort of watercolor photorealism and everything. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, I remember that. The, the The final product he took kind of a turn with. So everybody in the book, except for Jack Kirby looks like a normal person. But Jack Kirby, he gave anime eyes to. And so throughout the entire book, Jack Kirby has these huge blue anime eyes that he sees the world with. 
And I think it's supposed to be like a representation that he didn't belong to our world, like he belongs to the comics or to something else. I don't really know why the affectation, but no matter what, it is a really deep dive into lots of cool Kirby stories, things from the war that he shared throughout his years, um, stories from his wife, Roz, and then uh, some really, I thought, good, hard looks at how he was treated by the industry. And at the end of it, if you don't walk away saying, capitalism robbed us of Jack Kirby's best, then you didn't read the book right. Uh, it's really all about how the market and how these different companies, they kind of squash these guys out, even when they are inventing an art form, sort of. So uh, I really dug it. it. It stuck with me. I've been thinking about it for the last few weeks since reading it. That's awesome. And did you say, uh, maybe I missed it, what the publisher is? Didn't say who the publisher is. Let that sounds pretty art housey. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to say Fanagraphics, but no, it's 10 Speed Press. Okay, cool. Yeah. It seems like a Fanagraphics joint. Yeah, it did seem yeah. like a Fanagraphics thing. Uh, but Scioli, I like, I'm always intrigued by everything he does. Like, I want him to do more. And I know he's changed some. And friend of the show, J3K, Justin Stewart, we talk about Tom Scioli every year about, like, every year we go around and have a hard discussion about, like, do we still like him or not? Because he's kind of given up on inking stuff. Uh, so he's all about it's softer looking. And I think that I don't want to misquote Justin. Maybe he doesn't he doesn't want his feelings shared. But, uh, he has thoughts on Tom Scioli's latest style. But you should check it out because it was cool. And Jack Kirby was cool. I think the first issue of that was a free comic book day grab a few years ago. Oh, nice. Yeah. OK. Yeah, I've, I've read the first issue of it and I liked it. I wanted to read the rest of it. It was at the library. Ah, OK. I'll check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Who's up next, Luke? Uh, we'll pass the the, the, the conch over to, to Josh if you're I, ready, dude. I have the conch. I've been reading comic books, too. It's uh, Jason Aaron's run on Thor because I wanted to know who the um, who the, the god butcher was. John, you look real excited. Well, I'm just I'm, – go on. Like, what do you think? <laughs> well, uh, here's what I think. I think that Aaron channels some of the, the Kirby-era – and and more so the Simonson era uh, on Thor. And I guess the the Kirby part comes in because like it is completely cosmic in its scope. Um, this guy is Gore the God Butcher is is going around to all these planets and he's killing their their pantheons of gods. And there you have your your synopsis. That's all you need. And, <laughs> it's, it's, and now it's, he's being played by Christian Bale. Yeah, he's Christian Bale now, or Christian Bale is him. And so I wanted to see what that was all about. And uh, I I really enjoy the storyline. It's bleak as all hell. And there's a there's a nice twist I think in terms of like Gore's goals and what he actually he actually kind of becomes the thing that he hates. It's it's pretty pretty good so have you read that um that run john oh yeah yeah i've got it sitting in a long box back there i actually uh when we went to a con once just luke and i i took the first issue of thor uh god of is it god of thunder god or, of Thunder, yeah yeah i took that mm -hmm. up to jason aaron and he signed it and i asked him to draw his beard on thor and he was very confused but he acquiesced and did it for me <laughs> that's nice um but the storyline is cool because it takes place across three different timelines and, and three different points at which Thor has met uh, Gore uh, throughout their their lives and the the constant conflict that they are uh, sort of playing out. It's it's real good. I like it a lot. Asad Ribic on art, who uh, then later did Conan. Not not much later. Maybe at the same. Did they coincide? No, right. Wow. Yeah, so it, it, it kind of uh, a little bit later, but yeah, Ribic on on Conan, good stuff. I'm very happy cool, that man. you're reading that Thor run, man. Yeah, so I've finished uh, Gore and the the God Bomb or whatever it's called. I think that's the story. I think that's what the story is called. And I think the next thing is Malekith, which I'm pretty excited about because um, I really like Malekith from from the Simonson stuff. We're gonna have to talk later. Okay, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> what about you luke what are you into uh season three of the hbo show barry uh just wrapped up uh the time of this recording uh not too too long ago uh and i was able to uh double slam the last two episodes of the season uh last night and i loved it uh i love that show so much it's crazy how it has so much 
absurdist material and so much heart and so much uh, violence and so much like pathos and all of this sort of smooshed up and Bill Hader is both an angel and a devil at the same time and so many other characters in the show are it's truly like the bee's knees pretty pretty noir sensibilities in in a lot of ways but it's just it's a bonker show so uh the third season wrapped up and hopefully season four will come along pretty quickly because there was a pretty big gap between the second and this most recent third season because of covid things were on a, a hiatus i think there was a two to three year kind of lag in between when Holy the shows like, but when they came out, yeah. So you do love that show a lot. I'm I'm sad that it's ending on you, I guess. But it sounds like at least it's coming to a nice, tidy conclusion for you. Yeah. So there should be one more season. I I, I don't know. Oh. I know that it had. It, yeah, it did get picked up for season four. Oh, I thought uh, this was the last one. I'm sorry. No. Uh, it definitely has. Like it ends, of course, on a on a pretty solid cliffhanger. I think it's been picked up for a fourth season. If not, it's going to be a classic HBO show that never. <laughs> That never that never finishes. Classic. <laughs> yep, it does look like they announced that there would be a fourth a fourth season with Hater direct, uh, directing all eight episodes, and uh, Hater directed at least the last two that I watched last night, and they were badass. Dude can can wear a lot of hats. I'm still holding out hope that they'll finish Carnival. It'd be cool if they brought it back and uh, recast people if they need to. Yeah, they'll I mean, probably have to recast everybody. Almost everybody, but I mean, if if uh, uh, Twin Peaks can come back twenty five years later, then you know, so can Carnival. That would be that's true, man. They could come back and uh, what? So it it was basically spanning like what the early twenties, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was post World War One, Great Depression, or something. So if they aged it the same way t- Twin Peaks did, would it come back like right before? World War Two, you could be- you could uh, pull in some some nuclear horror like Twin Peaks style, it like really, it would be really good. <laughs> some far out stuff. Where are you, brother Justin? Where are you? Anyway, so put it all in a pot, stir it all around, keep it at a low simmer for about thirty minutes, and then you got yourself a one day. Stir it up, <laughs> mix it in a pot like gumbo. So. So, 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 so the end of the Gothic road. Yeah. We've moved along. We talked about three stories. We talked about Dracula. We talked about Frankenstein. And then we talked about what the strange, curious, coincidental case. Some There's lots of other words in front of it, but it's Jekyll and Hyde by uh, Stevenson, right? Of the scientist so. in the m- midnight. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the three things that we talked about. They're of varying lengths, which maybe that's something that we can talk about. Uh, we read different versions of the text. Maybe that's something we can talk about. I think we all had varied mileage with each of the stories. I don't know. How do we want to? How do we want to tackle this? Is there any certain thing that you guys want to get into first here? I, I want to talk about gothic f- fiction overall, and I don't. I don't want to go deep because I don't think any of us are really experts on what it is to be to define something as, as Gothic. But in my head, something is Gothic. If the infrastructure around you is crumbling and falling apart, and that is a symptom of something greater in the story like that, that is an expression of, of decay that is at perhaps at the heart of the story or driving the story. And something supernatural generally like a, a maybe a ghost or or maybe a vampire and so to me the the most gothic of these is dracula but i don't know what you guys think about that well like what do you think it takes for a, a story to be gothic and which which is uh that we read which is most goth yeah i think that you're totally right on the points of the degraded uh, setting, like whatever it is, whether it's a house that's fallen apart or a family that's falling apart or a civilization that's falling apart. Like those are Gothic tropes all, all together. And you mentioned the, the horror element, having something ghostly sometimes though. And I'm not an expert with a lot of the Gothic, the early Gothic novels, but sometimes it's Scooby-Doo style horror though. Right? Like it seems, (laughs) it seems spooky, but then there's a, a real explanation, right? Like that, mm-hmm. 
that can ultimately play out. But I think a gothic story really does need to have that kind of some sort of spook factor, though, right? I think so. I think that makes it I think that is the 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 salt that flavors it. I don't think you necessarily have to have it. And, and probably you don't, you know, thinking about stories that I know have been classified as as gothic, uh, gothic fiction. Let's see. I just ran across uh, Great Expectations, like Miss Havisham, I guess, is a gothic character. Okay. Right. She She's wealthy. She kind of belongs to an, an, an older time. Um, and there's, uh-huh. there's nothing supernatural about Great Expectations. But I think that it having something supernatural in the story adds more flavor to it. And that could just be yeah. my personal, my personal preferences, you know? Well, I tend like also I've, I've not read all of Shirley Jackson's novels, but I would absolutely qualify like Shirley Jackson's writing as Gothic and structured. It's, it's a more recent sort of novel form, mm-hmm. right. than like the stuff that we read for this season, like the classic early Gothics, but I would totally say in her case, that strikes me. There's that sense of decaying house or family or personal mind that's kind of kind of there. And then you can have the overlay of a haunted house or a haunted family and whether or not that actually come becomes the thing that's that's true. It's there. I think it's good. What do you think, John? Like, is this like what are, are we missing any other characters for for what would make a gothic story as far as in your book? Or you think those are kind of two good qualifiers? No, I think we've hit on the things that I would have pointed out. And I also was just, as we were talking, as you were talking, kind of poking around Wikipedia, looking at what other people have said. Uh, I was intrigued by this list. They talk about a story called The Beetle. I don't know that one. Uh, it wasn't a part of our list. Uh, they talk about Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, there's a few other people that pop up on here that I never would have thought of including uh, on a gothic list, but. Uh, I, I can see the arguments that are being made, I guess, as I kind of root pursue or peruse through this. I, I I've mentioned this to you guys before, <clears throat> and I've probably talked about her on the show. Um, but my junior uh, year, I had an English teacher who used horror as as her main uh, literary sort of uh, focus to teach us whatever concepts we learned that year. And so we read a bunch of horror and one of the things we read and then watched the film adaptation of was the fall of the house of Usher. And that is, you know, there's a, there's an old crumbling house that symbolizes the, the old crumbling family and there's no ghosts, but there's like psychosis, right. That runs in the family. So, you know, I, I just think of these crumbling sort of structures that symbolize some sort of, you know, crumbling relationship or, or mental state or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's kind of tie into the Shirley Jackson stuff. Like we've always lived in the, uh, lived in the castle. Uh, you know, that's totally the headspace of the decaying house, the decaying sisters and the family unit sort of falling apart. It, it, it totally actually i mean so of of the big weird tales 3 you know lovecraft is very gothic i guess with a lot of his with his story structure right and mm-hmm. his his focus on family and his focus on inevitable like inescapable past and decay of civilization mm-hmm. that's and true. i guess i mean howard even too right like i guess howard has stories that very much like thinking about brand mcmorn that whole like story cycle, there's the decay of the pick, the Pictish peoples, right? Like over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They seem to rise and fall and rise and fall again. And even in his non uh, historical or pseudo historical fantasy and, and epic stuff, like pigeons from hell features a, you know, a, a crazy old family that, that lives in a creepy old house that's fallen down on itself. It's very proto Southern Gothic, right? Like it's like that, that it's that setting too. Yeah. I've been thinking about that story a lot lately. I don't know if it's reading these stories or, or what, but it's, it's been on my mind a lot. So which of these three stories? Well, hold on. We did Frankenstein. We did Dracula. We did Jekyll Jekyll and I. Yeah. So three, three tales, which of these three tales did you guys enjoy the most? And what were the most important Gothic themes that we can pull out from them? John, do you want to go first? Like, uh, I would go with Dracula. Surprisingly, I did not anticipate liking it the most, but it ended up being my favorite. 
Why is that? Uh, I don't know. There was a nice blend of the gothic elements like that we've been discussing and then some action. And I don't know. There was something there was something to it that was missing from Frankenstein, ultimately, in my opinion. As much as Frankenstein is the precursor, seemingly, to a lot of this, it still has a lot of the rough edges. So, in my opinion, Dracula was a more streamlined gothic novel that I enjoyed more. How about you, Luke? Yeah, I would... I would agree. I mean, of the three, Dracula still is my is my fave. But I did like rereading Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde this time around because I'd only read them the once each. And so I was able to pick up more on the themes. And I, you know, reading Frankenstein this time, I was able to read like the, I guess, the OG, the original uh, Shelley text versus the more revised one that people tend to be able to pick up. So it was cool to see how rough the edges actually were versus how they were smoothed out a little bit across the two, the two different editions of that story that are there. But that story just suffers from some of the. I think some of the bad stereotypes of the gothic tale with the 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 meandering and uh, what's the best word? Just it's not saccharine, but like overly sweet, melodramatic. There we go. Yeah, like the go. overly melodramatic aspects of the story. <laughs> and and to say that Dracula isn't melodramatic is, of course, kind of silly because melodrama just like drips from the, the page of that. But I can really glom onto it. In Dracula, and I had a harder time with with it in uh, Frankenstein. So yeah, Dracula's still my faves. I loved reading Jekyll and Hyde though, and to pick up on how mean and masculine that story is this time around was super cool because I totally didn't pick up on much the first time that I read it because I think I read it over the span of like a couple days, you know, just just kind of devoured it and moved along. So I liked them all, but Dracula's still the king. Yep. No, I feel the same. Dracula is still my favorite. It was my favorite going in. So probably I was already sort of primed for that. But there is something about the the creature in Frankenstein and his the fact that he is kind of is he a, I want to ask you guys, is he a villain? Is he an antihero? And is Victor Frankenstein a villain or is he an antihero? Like, how did you read that story? Like, it's pretty clear that Dracula is a villain, right? He's not. He's no hero. What do you think? Yeah, I would say that the the monster in Frankenstein is is an antihero as compared to Dracula and Hyde, which are truly abominable evil. And while I love while I love me antiheroes, I think that I, I like the I like the bad guys <laughs> that much more in these in these two instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talked about that over a couple different episodes with Frankenstein, right? Like how uh, Victor is the the D bag that is just not a not a likable dude, at least to me until, you know, the the whole way through. Like he's he is the sinful individual and the monster is more admirable in a lot of ways. Yeah, Victor's a deadbeat dad, and this is his son that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and maybe isn't quite right, but uh, it ain't his fault. His 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 indignation is righteous, I think. Like, yeah. he definitely has a point that Victor cannot answer, and, and that is, you know, why did you create me in the first place? Why did you make me so ugly? Why, you know, I didn't ask for any of this. And now I guess I'm a villain. And if I have to be a villain, I'll do villainous things. Do you think that the creature at the end of the story fe- actually feels remorse? Because he's he's kind of relaying all of this emotion to the, the boat captain, right? The Arctic uh, expedition captain. And then he says, you know, I'm going to go burn myself. We talked about this kind of at the end of that that episode. But after having thought about it some more, do you... Do you have any further insight into what the creature's going to do? Well, we talked about it. I, I do think that Shelley was intentional in not killing the monster, not showing that death on screen. Uh, and I love the idea that that's sort of wrapped up in her uh, mother, childbirth, mommy, mommy, daddy issues that are just like pregnant within within the novel. And I think it's. I think it's hard to say with any distinctiveness, and I think that's the 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 earmark of a really good literary effort, right? Like it's the it's the spinning coin 
at the end of uh, Inception. Like, you can ask these questions and, and you're not going to be wrong either way, right? Like, that's the intention of it. I think... I think it's I think it's the same. So thinking about another sort of anti-hero that we've covered in depth, Conan the the Sumerian, uh, Robert E. Howard does not show Conan's death on on screen, but Conan is going to die, right? Like it's inevitable. So whether it's old age, whether he you know is getting old and slow, and somebody else who's faster and stronger than him gets him, or some monster finally eats him, something's going to happen. Do you think that? Howard had a similar sort of attachment to that character um, and, and basically all of his characters. He never really shows any of his characters die, right? Cole doesn't die on screen. Bran McMoran, like something happens that transforms him into the, the dark man statue. You know, Solomon Cain, the last the last we hear of him is Solomon Cain's homecoming, right? Where he's sitting in a bar telling people about his exploits and then he heads back out. God knows where. <laughs> Do you think there's just some some sort of uh, in in authors in general that write in this tradition or or in traditions that kind of pull from this some element of reticence in killing their their darlings? I think Howard was attached to his characters, but I think that for him the allure was more of a they slip into legend like that. That's the world that Howard is working in. That his characters are going to transfer into myth and superstition and you'll never people won't quite know if they're real or not like that's that's the conan thing right is it was an age undreamed of before the fall of this and that and the other like they start out with him being in the past so i think that his is more of a mythical element shelley i think is more of a uh it's supposed to be dubious like you need to you you don't need the resolution you need to think about it like what what does the creature deserve okay yeah, yeah, I think kind of piggybacking on what John's saying here, there's differences in story structure, right? Like Howard was writing the short form mm-hmm. and he was writing adventure tales yeah. and his his uh, adventurers were living to fight another day. So he kept characters alive on that front because he was actively and routinely writing them. And Shelley left – the creature alive, but him saying in his own voice that he's going to his own death, you know, intentionally vague for literary purposes. But uh, I think it's a difference of story story type. Like if you have a recurring short story character, you're you might write some sort of final beat. But there's a there's a butt ton of current short story recurring characters that that aren't aren't dead yet right mm-hmm. and maybe if howard would have lived longer maybe he would have killed off one of these characters he would have gotten know? sick of it like doyle did of sherlock <laughs> yeah and been like ah oh, it's over but then you got to bring uh, him back right like like sherlock <laughs> you you've got the the dive from the waterfall right and then yeah he comes right his back. publisher made him bring it back it seems like well uh, do you, the don't other, you think farnsworth right would have been that i think is interesting in frankenstein is that it's the re- it's a resolution to like a biblical story, right? Like, what if Satan killed God? And then that's what I want to see. I don't want to. I don't care what happens to the devil after he kills God. Like, that's a, that's up to him. But the the resolution that we get between the two characters is is the end beat that you need. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like uh, I think that Frankenstein is. I think Shelley really does stick the landing with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I if I framed it as such whenever we talked about it the last time around, but you know, I brought up the, well, we didn't see him dying. Like that was the, Oh, the, the anthologist Wolf he made, or not the anthologist, the, the editor Wolf makes that point. Like, Hey, this isn't this interesting. And think, think about all of Shelley's baggage. Uh, but she at least gives a sense of finality to the story. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's layers to interpret. So I think she really does stick the landing and she doesn't have one of those artsy fartsy endings to a movie where the movie ends and you're like, well, what the hell happens next? Like you can't end this thing like mid scene. Like you've got another two minutes here to give, (laughs) to give some (laughs) sense of closure. Like there's absolutely that biblical closure. I think that like John's tapping into, it really does feel biblical in its scope. All of the allusions to, to Satan and whatnot, just just make it ripe with that. 
So it's it's not a uh, what year is this or or how's Annie? Sort of yeah, thing. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So looking at you, Lynch, like <laughs> <laughs> give me forty five more seconds to to have a little bit more interpretation. <laughs> nope, denied. Um, <laughs> nope. Good. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that the ending, the the more I've sort of sat with it and thought about it after after we discussed it, after we finished reading it, um, and then going back and rereading those last couple of chapters. I really like the way that novel ends. And overall, I really like the novel. I just think that there, there are a few chapters in the middle where it sags, you know, it's, it's a, it's a little tough to, to slog through that. But if you do, you're rewarded. I think like it's, it's, it's worth it in the end to, to power through it and keep reading, um, for all of the powerful biblical sort of, uh, imagery and sort of influence on the storytelling. I, I guess it's yeah. not really biblical. It's Mil- Miltonian. It, it's through a Miltonian lens, right? Yeah. Good catch. Yeah. That's totally, that's, that's absolutely, that's absolutely it. Uh, I wish that, I don't know if Stevenson, cause you know, we talked about with Stevenson and Jekyll and Hyde, he apparently like wrote and then rewrote the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like a couple times. And it's so tight. And so, like, it's one of those, I, I, I feel like I, I used this just the other day talking to, talking to Josh about, uh, another show or a, another, another thing, but like, it's the clockwork sort of uh, story where there's this morality play and you have just so many cogs that are interacting and talking against one another that the story works as a, as a machine, right? Like Jekyll and Hyde does that. Whereas Frankenstein the the machine is not quite so uh, clean. There's some messiness to it, and some unnecessary uh, extra cogs that could have been could have been sort of bypassed. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I and agree. I know I, I know that you could turn around and say, well, it's a gothic story, and there's this this focus on atmosphere, so the inclusion of uh, jet setting across different rivers and countries in Europe and getting to spend time with these various families in a village or in a hut. That's like part of the Gothic nature in and of itself. But to me, it just worth into like what you were saying, Josh, man, I, I just thought about like the different properties, uh, the different houses in, uh, Dracula versus in Jekyll and Hyde and Dracula's, um, castle is all you know out of use there's no there there's dust on everything there's cobwebs everywhere uh carfax abbey is much the same and that's kind of what he's looking for right a reflection of of him uh sort of outward outwardly and then we have the house in jekyll and hyde and one half of it is super nice and the other half of it we talked about this in the show like it's two faces base right it's uh one half is is nice and the other half is uh questionable where the lab is. And uh, I just, I love that idea of these domiciles reflecting the, the mental state and the, the true character of, of the, the person. And I guess, the- and it's, yeah, it's elegant, right? Like, especially in Jekyll and Hyde, like in that instance, it's such an elegant little maneuver to say so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's pretty neat. I, I don't think that we get a similar sort of, reflective property of a a place reflecting the the mental state of the person in Frankenstein. I guess he describes his lab as kind of a, a charnel house, right? Like it's kind of a kind of a butcher shop. But the locations in those other two stories are almost as much a character. It's like when you talk about Batman and Gotham and stuff like London and Transylvania are very important to Dracula, that house is important. Like none of the places are important in the Frankenstein story. Like the place of and of itself isn't evocative of anything except maybe the Arctic part where it's like the they're Arctic both part. so alone and desolate. Yeah. And I wonder about the river trip, right? In Frankenstein where he's, he's with uh Clairval and they're, they're hanging oh. out on the river and they're going, they're going North. I think they're going to Scotland maybe. And, uh, all the scenes are kind of idyllic. Everything is nice on the, on the river. And, um, there's something out there. 
beyond the trees, like beyond the the beauty. It's coming to get you. I don't. I don't know. It doesn't the quite track, monster. <laughs> it doesn't quite track the same way as as it does in the other two stories. I think. So bringing this into weird tales, do you guys think that these stories or the the gothicness of these stories kind of found its way into the stories that we traditionally read on the show, the pulps. Yeah, I think so. I think we've already mentioned Lovecraft and, and Howard. I wish, you know, this is going to be an ongoing endeavor, right? We're almost at a decade in and we've read some longer form and some shorter form stuff, but there's just so many, various authors for us to to test the test the waters with we haven't read a whole lot of strict more stricter horror in the weird tales though right and i have to think that we would be seeing lots of overly wrought gothic tropes in the pages of weird tales that we're just not even familiar with but Mm -hmm. within the sword and sorcery realm it's totally there man uh you know more recently like i think we talked about the well, I know we did the gothic nature of Cain whenever we got to Carl Edward Wagner and mm-hmm. the decay of civilization. It's not it's not civilization versus barbarism so much in a in a in a Wagner Cain story. It's more civilization is is gone or is is a, a, a mere shadow of what it was, which is very gothic in its structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, we've read limited numbers of, of Clark Ashton Smith stories, but it seems like his worlds, his entire settings are blasted, right? They're, they're um, shadows of their former glories. Right, I was about right. to ask if you guys thought he was the most gothic of our Weird Tales 3 that we frequently reference to. Man, I, I think he is because, he, you know, it would be closer, I think. I think the Venn diagram for gothicness between those three would overlap more strongly between Lovecraft and Smith and, and less strongly. So for Howard, Howard doesn't, it's, it's not like he doesn't do it. It's there. But as far as being on front street, I think Clark Ashton Smith's worlds, like uh, what is, uh, you know, I can't think of the one setting that is, uh, it's like a dying earth kind of thing, right? For, for Smith. And, uh, yeah, it seems like there are, you know, we read we read the story, uh, the coming of the white worm, which was this apocalyptic sort of tale that uh, this this alien creature lands and and shows up and is like, I'm I'm just you know unless you come with me, I'm going to kill everybody. And you know, there's there's just so much richness in the characterization, I think, of Smith's characters that just sort of vibrates with gothicness. Yeah. And you know, I would totally agree. Like of the, of the three, he taps into that. I think he's psychedelic as hell though. Like he's kind of venturing into weirder waters the same way that like CL Moore mm-hmm. does with the, with the, the Jarrell stories that, that we've read and, you know, that we talked about back in season two, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know how much, did Robert uh, Chambers publish in in uh, Weird Tales? He probably didn't at all because he was he. I'm, I'm pulling it up here. He died in '33. Uh, oh yeah, so he probably did so, at least a little bit. But yeah, if he was, but and he was 68. It looks like he was 68 when he died. So he may have been. I can't remember his writing history. Uh, but he, like the King in Yellow, you know, was in 1895. So mm-hmm. definitely following in the footsteps of the stuff that we kind of outlined here. But who else was I thinking about? I was looking through our our archive here. You know, like we they, also talked about. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say it looks like the the pulps, like famous Fantastic Mysteries. Uh, reprinted a lot of a lot of his stuff. Um, so like twenty or thirty years okay. later. So at least there's that overlap. You know, they they would have right. reprinted it if it didn't make sense to do so. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot, man. There's just so many more too because we've read like some lesser stuff. I don't want to say lesser. We've read some one-offs during our Cromtober episodes. I don't know that we maybe maybe we can return to the goth topic more with a weird tales focus. Maybe that would be a way to kind of to carry this forward in another season. If we wanted to kind of circle back around to this, to these kinds of, 
feels that we're getting mm-hmm. uh, with with the stuff that we were covering here. So what else do we want to want to hit on here, guys? Who would you rather have a drink with Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, either the doctor or the monster or um, Jekyll or Hyde? I would love to buy Frankenstein the monster his first beer at three years old. Yeah. Yeah. Not Dracula because he never drinks wine. Yeah, I don't think I would enjoy that evening. <laughs> well, I think yeah, I'd probably go with uh with Frankenstein's monster. If we can't if we can't uh hang out with the the brides of Dracula for for like a, a long weekend just <laughs> tapping into uh the, the casks downstairs. Man, they're they're yeah. gonna they tap, they're gonna tap they into you is what's I, gonna happen. <laughs> 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 Sorry, John. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, they eat a baby. That's all I wanted to shout is that he wants to hang out with baby eaters for a whole weekend. Oh man! But what does what, what does she say in Army of Darkness? So bad, but it feels so good. How does it go? I know you. That's it. That's it. I'm bad. Yeah. Um, you love me. I may once. look bad, but I feel so good. Yeah. You love me once. You found me beautiful once. You found me beautiful once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honey, you got real ugly. God. Oh, man. We're going to have to bring that back. We're going to side note. We need to watch all of the the evil deads for for Halloween this year. Okay, I'm like not necessarily for Cromtober. Just just watch them all because that would be I haven't watched evil either of the evil dead since the last time that we probably watched them, whatever that was. Uh huh. We did the first one for the show, like during the the tomes season. Uh huh. Um. But I haven't watched Evil Dead too. I haven't. I haven't rewatched the uh, the remake that uh, Fed Alvarez did. Oh yeah! Since we watched it in the theater, you and I. Yeah. And I remember thinking, "Holy crap, this is awesome!" Uh, I would like to revisit it. <laughs> I would like to watch it with John. One. Yeah, John has to watch it this time. That's the one with the, the box cutter, right? Yeah, she licks a box cutter. Uh, uh, yeah. She gets better. I don't know about all that. She gets better. Gets better. <laughs> she, she gets better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what what else do we want to talk about here? I did enjoy also with the season being in the position to read editorial comments. I mean, we've always mm-hmm. been pretty good about farming out and looking up various lines of scholarship, like as we've been talking about stories, you know, whether it's pulling from books or PDFs or, you know, short articles or whatnot, but having uh clinger for versions, right? Yeah. And that was, that was a different thing that I'd never like, well, I guess I've done it with, with my, with my Lovecraft having like the Joshi, you know, mm. remarks like in the, in the, the penguin versions of those books that I have. Uh, and I guess I've done it with, with Tolkien, but I don't know. It was cool to just be able to read Dracula and Frankenstein and like as you're reading kind of get lost with some of the the annotation that's provided there. That was kind of a cool thing. I think it also may have pulled me out of the story at different points in time, but it was a cool thing. It is. It's like a Wikipedia rabbit hole. That's like there with you while you have the, the book, but it's not as distracting. It's not like you're, you know, clicking, Link after link after link, and and suddenly you're ignoring the book that you're reading. Yeah, I I really love my annotated Dracula. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and I looked for some uh, detailed annotation for Jekyll and Hyde. I couldn't find anything easily. Like there's so many copies of Jekyll and Hyde, but they're all kind of the same dollar store release or part of a a Stevenson collection. I guess if anybody's listening to the show and knows of something that's more detailed or more critically insightful about that story, tweet at us or throw us an email or something. Cause I would love to, to pick it up. Cause I, I now I want to reread Jekyll and Hyde again, maybe here in a year or two, mm-hmm. uh, like circle back around. Cause this is a book that's a little, a little, a little tale that I think is pretty, that's eminently readable. And I can see myself really, getting into it the same way that I've gotten into like uh, sleepy hollow in recent years being something that I'll come back to with its short form and kind of mow through. Mm-hmm. So John, having not read any of these uh, <laughs> before, 
did it did reading them give you different insight into the character i guess i'm speaking mainly about dracula since i had never read either of the other two stories but in all three cases did reading these give you more insight into the pop culture um stamina that they have I feel like I understood the stamina that most of them have. It maybe helped me understand Frankenstein a little bit more and made me a little wistful for the fact that we haven't had a true Frankenstein adaptation, seemingly. Like, we haven't had this this creator and created sort of uh, dichotomy. Uh, It's been very, like, the monster is bad, the monster isn't uh, as colorful or interesting and as poetic uh, as in the book. So maybe that's what it is, is that people want to get to that somehow, but we keep failing and somehow we've ended up with Aaron Eckhart as a, as a a gargoyle hunter as the most recent iteration. (laughs) But I don't know that I I would say it helped me understand Dracula better. I, I, I feel like I understand why Dracula persists, but it did give me a deeper understanding of why Dracula got started. Maybe is the better way to put it. Okay. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I, I think that my appreciation kind of has increased for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, often it's, uh, shorthand for somebody whose mood kind of swings from one end to the other of the spectrum from, from jovial to angry too quickly or whatever, get angry at, at something very easily. But I, I think that there's more to Jekyll and Hyde than that. I also kind of in reading these was thinking about the larger worldview implications of the plots of each one. Like if they hadn't killed Dracula, there would have been vampires all over London. And those dudes that killed Dracula don't know how many other vampires there are out there. Right. It's true. Like like how many children does Dracula have already? The, the notes and formula and everything that Victor had, did he burn those? Like he dropped think, You think so? Didn't he do it in front of the monster? And say, like, I refuse, I won't make I mean, well, I won't he make another. The, he chopped the, the bride that he was making up and threw her in the lake. But I'm not sure if he burned the notes. He might have. Um and then the formula that uh Jekyll made to transform him into Hyde, like how many other people might stumble upon that same discovery? You could have an army of, of hides. I don't know. I, I, I can totally see how someone with an imagination can take these ideas and, and broaden them. And I understand, uh, and appreciate more so now the, uh, the pop culture, uh, I, I guess longevity is the best, best word for it. Like how, why these characters have persisted for so long. But that's all that's all I have, I guess. How about you guys? I think we're I think we're pretty much tapping out. Like these are all uh I think pretty well discussed. Even though we only spent a single episode on Jekyll and Hyde, I still feel like we had a pretty pretty robust conversation for that one. But our breaking down of Dracula and Frankenstein, I think was pretty thorough. Uh so I feel like we've We've given fair, fairly deep dives for each of those, probably six or eight hours on each of those two books, mm-hmm. and then at least an hour and a half, two hours on, on, on Jekyll and Hyde. Maybe it was just an hour and a half on that one. It occurs to me that that science is the villain in Frankenstein and in Jekyll and Hyde, but is kind of the the savior in Dracula. In Dracula, yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good observation. Yeah. So what do you what do you guys make of that? Is there nothing more to see here? Is is there something more to be fathomed from those depths? I think that the science is wobblier and in Jekyll and Hyde. Like it's just a a sheer coincidence, or like not it's not a coincidence, uh, a sheer mistake that uh, Jekyll was able to end up doing what he did with his tinctures. Like he was, he was delving deep and searching for that kind of thing. But to me, that story is almost a little bit more mystical or like, uh, like alchemical as opposed to, I think the straight up badness of the science, the scientific mind of, of Frankenstein in in that novel. But he also starts on an alchemical road. I think they both have a message of like, 
there are things that perhaps we shouldn't delve into. Like there are things that maybe we weren't meant to know or meant, meant to do. Whereas Dracula for all the things that we talked about it being good, like it is a, uh, a uh, Western Europe versus Eastern Europe, a, uh, a myth versus uh, modern type uh-huh. thing where right. like, we, are, we are educated gentlemen from the Isles and uh, these backwoods superstitions of the Eastern Europeans, uh, they can't hold a candle to what we have. Or however yeah. Ludwig von Drake would talk. <laughs> the, <laughs> well, they, uh, they have uh, medical science. They have um, forensic science at their disposal. Right. They're able to figure out all of these different things about Dracula and meld them with the folklore to to understand how to defeat this guy. But I think in a different hand, you would see the same things that happen in Dracula become the evil in the other stories. Like if Mary Shelley had written Dracula, maybe the blood transfusions that they're trying to do to save somebody's life creates the vampire, like oh, creates a vampiric problem. Maybe. Uh I mean, they, they have the same sets setups. It's people doing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing according to God's plan. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. I like the Elseworld idea of uh, Mary Shelley writing Dracula and Bram Stoker <laughs> writing uh, um, Jekyll and Hyde and Stevenson. Robert Lewis writing, Stevenson, yeah. Frankenstein. Uh-huh. That, that would be cool. <laughs> what if? What if? Yeah, exactly. It's like the there wasn't there a Stan Lee. What if Stan Lee created the DC universe? Right, yeah, and there was a Batman, and there was a Catwoman, and there was oh yeah, he Superman. did them all. Yeah, I've never read those. I can't imagine they're very good. It's real bad. It's yeah, real bad. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow made the idea of Batman being a pro wrestler uh, boring. <laughs> that's, that's bad. That's sad. Oh well. That's the Gothic right. Road. We kind of nailed it. Is, it. Yep, we're putting putting it uh, putting it to rest. We're done with the Gothic Road. So we've devoured it like those brides did, did that baby. Yeah, and then to Harker. Wink. You're uh, you're fixated on that dude. I am fixated baby, on it because thing. you guys kept trying to tell me they were sexy, and all I can see them as is baby eaters. <laughs> They're man eaters too. I think that's cool. I think that's great. It's an inversion. What do you think about Dracula Daily? I I think we've texted about it. It's weird to me that it coincided somewhat with our season. I think it's, yeah, I think it's weird. I think uh, this year, wasn't this year a big Dracula anniversary, unbeknownst to us? You said something about they were trying to have a Dracula or a vampire world record. Yeah, they wanted to have the most Draculas at uh, Castle Dracula in in, uh, Transylvania. So it must be. They wanted the the Guinness Book of World Records for the the greatest number of vampire cosplayers at any one place. I'm glad they put cosplayers in. I don't think it was cosplayers. I, I think it was uh, Dracula's. I think they oh. they used the shorthand. Gotcha. But is this a big year for Dracula? I'm not sure. It's not an anniversary year. Yeah. So I think the it's just part of the zeitgeist, man. Oh, it's a Substack. That might be part of it. Like this new way of getting a newsletter out and somebody came up with the kind of interesting idea of using the dates in the epistolary form of Dracula to be like, oh, I could do this. Yeah, I think. But there used to be a Twitter account that our Luke, Luke's and and my friend Heather uh, followed and she she clued us into that way back Hmm. in the day. So, yeah, that idea is, I think, not new. I think the newness is the uh, the email the convenience of it, like the accessibility of it. The book club in your inbox. Yeah, exactly. So where are we going, guys? Well, the next stop along our map is Wondrous Tales of Adventure and Quest. That's uh, I like I like how uh, how you worded it there. Oh, nice. You've got it out. Yeah, yes, I got it. So. Out. Uh, I don't book. quite no, know for people what we're going to call this road. What's the title of the book, Josh? Companions on the Road. The Road of Companions, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and who's it by? It's by Tanith Lee. And you bought a copy of this for me and for John because you're very kind. Yeah, man. It contains two shorter uh, novellas, I guess. The first one is Companions on the Road. 
Second one is called the Winter Players. I have no idea if they are connected to one another, if the characters coincide, if anything, if they're completely independent, if they share anything. I don't know. Yep, they're two standalone, discrete novellas, and they're awesome. I, so I read this and got super jazzed when I was going through a little bit of a, a Tanithly tear here a little bit ago, and was able to snag a couple and it makes it should make for a short season admittedly we could spend a whole lot more time on tanithly and we probably will down the road uh but this is a good way to talk about her i think in a in a sword and sorcery lens because a lot of her stuff uh kind of has a foot in the sword and sorcery arena and has a foot in the weird fiction arena i mean i shouldn't say a foot like all of her stuff is weird and sexy and uh, and horrific, you know, she's a horror writer. She's a fantasy writer. She's in that sort of vein, but I think these two stories are going to be good for us to kind of get back to our roots and talk about some, some, uh, some swords and some sorceries and some big myth. So that's what we're going to be getting into next. Probably, uh, we'll spend about four or five episodes on this season. So if you're looking to, uh, read along with this. All you'll need to do is get a copy of this book. It has been re-released more recently, uh, a couple times over. You might be able to get it for cheap uh, as a newer release, but also in a bookstore, you can probably find it. You know, for between four to eight bucks, especially if you're surfing around to place like a books or thrift books, you might be able to find it for cheap that way. Yeah, cool. I think uh, I'm I'm in real excited about this because I haven't read very much Tanith Lee. I've only really read, uh, what's the story? The Gorgon. Yeah. Yep. That's one of her anthologized horror stories. That's out there quite a bit. Yep. 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 So excited to, uh, get her take on, on this genre that Howard initially brought to life, like a Frankenstein's monster. Yes. Yes. So let's bring it to a close here, guys. People want to find us on the, uh, the worldwide web. How can they do that? Josh? You can stitch together your your letters in your browser taskbar. Use the combination that spells the Chromecast.blogspot.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at the Chromecast. Uh, you can email us the Chromecast at gmail.com, or you can call us and leave us a voicemail. That's 859-429-CROM. And with that, we'll uh, see you a little bit further down the road. <laughs>